Okay. Uh, well, it's good to be back, and uh, I'm ready to get back into the routine of things, and uh, that's sort of starting with the day. I'm excited today. I'm very excited today because this is the first Sunday of January, first Sunday of 2018, and uh, a lot of beginning new things this, this, uh, today. Uh, we're going to start a new Sunday school study. Um, that we're going to be in for a little bit, and then we're also, Brother Steve's going to be starting and introducing some new things this morning in his Sunday morning message, and then tonight we're going to go over sort of the vision of the church for 2018 and the plan of the year, uh, what we got uh, planned, and so I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready to go and uh, do some things and step out out of, my, out of my comfort zone this year to do those things, but um, uh, let's get started in Sunday school. And uh, we're going to do this, uh, we're going to talk about the church for the next several weeks in Sunday school. And uh, the, the title of the, the study is going to be Ecclesia, and by the time we get done this morning, you're going to be very familiar with that word. Ecclesia, um, I think I have on there called out to be the church. On my page, I have what the church is supposed to be. And um, <clears throat> so uh, there is no perfect church. There is no perfect church. It does not exist out there. Uh, we are not a perfect church, even though we love our church and we are uh, faithful to our church. We are not perfect. And uh, uh, my goal in this study is to, number one, expound the truth of Scripture, and number two, to, uh, to help us as a church grow closer to what the Bible sets forth that what we are supposed to be, not what tradition says, but what we are supposed to be, okay? In this study, I'm going to do an introduction to the church, which is going to be this morning, just real briefly, and then we're going to go into church history. I'm going to start church history today, okay? Um, my, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. After that, we're going to talk about the purpose of the church. I'm going to go to what, who's the church for, uh, the church's responsibility, and the church's mission. And then we're going to talk about the structure of the church, church offices, church government, and church discipline. And then we're going to finish up with talking about where does the church go from here. So let's talk about the introduction to the church. Preacher, I actually have quite a bit of slides this morning. I forgot to say something. Uh, normally don't for Sunday school, but uh, I spent a bit of time last night watching the playoffs and preparing this, so getting this ready to go. Um. So we're going to start in our Bibles this morning in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. One of the things, uh, I'm going to mention the, the term church quite a bit. But one of the things I want you to get out of this study is to be familiar with the Greek term ekklesia almost as much as you are from, as the church. The reason for that is I believe that through tradition and through the years in America, the term church has carried on almost a different meaning to what the term that Jesus used, ecclesia, and that is used in the Bible, uh, originally meant. Okay, um, We associate the English word church with a lot of different things that has nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 16 when he introduces us to the ecclesia. So Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start reading. Yes, we're going to start reading in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came unto the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, 
some Elias or Elijah, others Jeremiah or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But who, whom say ye that I am? He says, who, who do you tell people that I am? And then we have one of Peter's great moments, verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Did he hit the nail on the head? Yes, he did. He did good. And Jesus commends him for it. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art, that thou art Peter, or Petros, this means rock, or stone. And upon this rock, who's he talking about? Himself. He's pointing back to himself. This rock, I will build my church. And this is where you have the term ecclesia. Okay, ecclesia. In fact, if you are in the habit of writing your, in your Bibles, and you can see how that word is spelled, right up there, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, I would almost just write that in. Just because of the definition we're going to spend today talking about, that needs to be the first thing that pops in your mind when you see the word church. And the gates of hell, or Hades, Hades, shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now when we get to talking about the purpose of the church, we're going to come back to this passage and really expound this passage. But we're going to use this to introduce and set up where we're going in this study. And the first thing we have to understand when we start out talking about the church, is the term ecclesia. Ecclesia. It is a Greek term. Um, I have up there, the, the first thing that you see up there, if you can read it, is the Strong's Concordance definition. It is a calling out that is a popular meaning, especially a religious congregation, Jewish synagogue or Christian community of members on earth or saints in heaven or both, assembly or church. It is used 115 times in the New Testament. Okay? Um, this is taken out of Fine's Expository Dictionary. Ekklesia, if you break the word down, it is the Hebrew preposition ek, which means out of. Okay? Then the next part of the word is klesis, which means a calling or to call. So you put the word together, and what is it saying? To call out of or a called out of assembly, okay? So that's what the church is. Now, when you hear the word church, what do you think? Do you use your mind automatically go of, go to a called out group of people designed for God's purpose? Or does it go with all the other little uh, uh, traditions that we have with church, Okay? Ecclesia, I like this. I don't, I don't have a lot of things that I say positive uh, about this guy uh, here lately, used to. But uh, I do like this quote by Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley says, Ecclesia never referred to a specific place, only a specific people. The church is not this building. It is not this building. Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself in, in the church history talks, but... Um, we talk about the Catholic Church. 
And that is very much the word Catholic, and a lot of evangelicals, especially Baptists, is almost like a, a cuss word. You know, Catholic, ugh, you know, like that. But the term Catholic just means universal. That's all the term means, Catholic. It means the universal church. Now, when somebody is saved, whether they're a member here or they're a member there or they're in another state, now what do they belong to? The church. So the idea of a universal church, the Catholic, if you will, church, is not wrong. Okay? There is a universal body called out assembly that Jesus said that he would establish. He would set up. He would build it. Okay? Now we, man, and we're going to see this as we go through church history, has really messed it up. Big time. Okay? Um, after Constantine, and again, this is getting a little bit ahead. We're going to come back and talk about this in a little bit. After Constantine had his vision and made Christianity the official Roman religion, it wasn't long before the assembly had meeting places set up by the government called basilicas. Basilicas. Now, where did the, the, we call the English term church. Where did that term come from? All right? Because you go back to the New Testament, right here when Jesus is talking to us, for the time being, they're talking in Greek. And they're mentioning the word ecclesia. So every time they use this term ecclesia, the audience that they're speaking to, that is speaking Greek, understands what they're saying. They understand what they're saying because they speak the language. And so you have this Greek term used for the next couple of hundred years as Greek is still a dominant language. Then when Constantine sets up the government religion as Christianity... They then established meeting places. Now, what were they meeting? Uh, I'm mixing, uh, beginning what I'm talking about. But whenever the church started out in the book of Acts, they were meeting in synagogues. Some places were meeting in their houses where the Jews still denied it. But in Jerusalem, they were able to use the temples, a lot of them. And these temples were getting filled up. Remember why they had the Jerusalem council? Because these people didn't like the, uh, the Gentiles, the new saved Gentiles coming into the temple and not going through the whole rituals, they were able to use the temples. What changed with that? Well, what changed with that was about 70 A.D., whenever there became a huge schism between Judaism, Christianity, and the Roman government. And after that, Christianity started to get under fierce persecution. Okay, And then they had to start meeting in houses, house to house. And for the next several hundred years, this is where you had churches meeting. Sometimes they got a building, but it was rare. And then you have the Constantine situation. And he sets up meeting places that they can called basilicas. Basilica is a Latin word meaning public building or meeting place. Um, a few hundred years later, well, actually about a hundred years later, uh, the Gothic or Germanic culture around the German area uh, used the word kirika, kirika. And this term was what they used to talk about the places that they make, which became the word Kirche in modern German. Kirika then turned into the word Kirche, and this word meant house of the Lord. It was used to refer to any place of meeting for ritual or gathering place for Christians or pagans. This term became what was used to describe the meeting place of Jesus, and now we know it in the English language as the word Church. That's where the term church came. And by the time the English term church was adopted, 
you had the full-on Middle Ages going with the big cathedrals and all kinds of different things like that, okay? So this is where we go from ecclesia to church. But understand what ecclesia is. It is God's representative body here on earth. You are called out. We are called out as the church to be different. We are called to assemble together for meeting together to discuss a purpose, to discuss what God has planned for us, okay? That's what the ecclesia is. Now, from there we go, I want to talk about and transition to talking about church history, okay? In order to understand how we got here, it's important for us to go through and go back and talk about where it began. Now, thanks to Brother Steve going through the book of Acts last year, or finishing up the book of Acts last year, it took him almost uh, a year uh, in between, to go through the book of Acts. That's where we have the church really getting started at Pentecost and then everything that it carried on through. Okay, and a lot of people, they, if they do understand what happened in the book of Acts, after that, it's like, that, what happened after the book of Acts? They, they, there's no really understanding of what happens with the church or the ecclesia after the book of Acts. So what happened there? I don't claim to be an authority on church history. In fact, I am definitely not an authority on church history. I've been trying to do as much study as I can on church history. Uh, and sort of a lot of what I'm going to give to you. My other, other thing I want to say about this is it is not my intention to really belabor this entire study on only church history, because we could really do that. Um, talking about the key incidents and the key figures, starting from uh, 100 A.D. all the way up to 1900, we could really spend the next two years, every Sunday school, talking about church history. Okay, That is not my intention. In fact, my intention is to really be done with this in two Sundays. That's my intention. I don't know if I'm going to. But that's my intention. I want to be done with church history in two Sundays. I'm going to try my best. So what you're going to get is a very quick overview of church history chronologically, if I can, if I can do that. I want to share this with you. This is sort of my study material. I want you to know this because I'm speaking this with things that I've studied from people that are authorities on church history. But um, uh, this is still something that I'm very, I'm fresh to, but I want to give it to you because we need, I'm going to talk a little bit about why study church history. This is the, uh, where I'm getting a lot of information out of Church History 101 by Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, this is where we're going we're to spend some time here being a Baptist church. We're going to talk about this a little bit. And um, also I'm in the middle of listening to a lecture series uh, on church history by Dr. James White that is uh, right now 48 lectures long, and he's been doing it for almost three and a half years. Now, I'm not going to go into what he... But I'm, I'm, I'm getting all of this information so I can sort of compound it and, uh, and give it to you, and then we can move on to understand where we go. So, real quickly, um, let me go over five reasons why study church history. Why study church history? See, when, a lot of times when, with some people... Not with me and Brother Steve. When you mention the word history, it becomes very boring. And if history bores you, then church history can really bore you, okay? Because you're not talking about major wars and battles and, and stuff. Sometimes there's intrigue and there's betrayal, but 
I mean, really, it's, it's not. But as a believer, I think that this should be an exciting thing for us, and we should know. Why? Uh, number one, it continues the history of God's faithful dealings with His people found in Holy Scripture and records the ongoing life and work of Christ in our world. Number two, we are commanded to remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee, according to Deuteronomy 8.2, and make it known to our children, Psalm 78.5 and 6. God with the Jews was all the time wanting them to pass down what had happened to them so they would know. Every time the Jews messed up or made a huge colossal mistake as a nation, what was it because? Because they forgot what God had done for them. And it's very important for us to look back, okay, we, and, and we, we're going to have a balanced approach to this, okay? A balanced approach. Uh, what you find a lot of times, especially with Baptists, is that uh, just like when we talked about the King James translation issue, that uh, they like to pick and choose and not be honest about history. Because the truth about history, about church history, is it's ugly. The truth about church history is it's ugly because the major figures in church history we probably would not get along with too well in our churches today. All right? And that's not very comfortable for a lot of people to say, well, we came from that. But we're going to talk about why that is. Um, number three, it illuminates and clarifies what we believe, providing a context for evaluating our beliefs and practices according to the teaching of the church of all ages. And uh, sort of understanding where, why do we get the doctrine that we get today? And has this been what we teach and believe from the Bible today? Has it always been the way it's been accepted? Okay. And then uh, number four, it is a safeguard against error. Because you can see where a lot of these truths were battled against in these councils and where they were established to believe. And number five, it gives us mentors and heroes, guides us to follow uh, as they followed Christ. Guides to follow. Um, I'm not crazy about having heroes because every time that I've seen that you get a hero, they, they let you down and they fail you. I think that our only hero should be Christ. But there is precedent in the Bible for us to follow other Christians or other men. There is precedent for that because Paul says, and I believe it's Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what we should do. We are to be examples so others coming after us follow, okay? So uh, that is why study church history. So um, now I want to talk about this. All right. Let me um, go ahead and go to the next slide. Let me go ahead and preface this that uh, I grew up in an independent Baptist church. I went to a Christian school from an independent Baptist church. Then I went to an independent fundamental Baptist college. Okay, In college, uh, I had a class called Baptist History. Not church history, Baptist history. And um, what I found out in the study that I've done so far is there's not just a few people. There's a lot of Baptist men that have uh, done studies like this and wrote books about this. But uh, we used a textbook called the Collegiate Baptist History Workbook by a guy named James Beller. And actually, James Beller came and uh, taught or preached in our chapel service one year. And uh, also, uh, a lot of what this is all stems from a little booklet that was written early in the 1900s by a guy named J.M. Carroll called The Trail of Blood. Okay? 
The Baptist proposition for church history is this, that Baptists are not Protestants. What is a Protestant? Protestant is any type of believer or church denomination that broke off from the Catholic Church. And the Baptist proposition is this, that we were never a part of the Catholic Church, and this is how J.M. Carroll and the Trail of Blood, and everybody that's come after him that adopts this view has wrote a book, has, has taken J.M. Carroll's theory and jumped on it, including the class that I took in college and was thought the way it was up until studying this, this subject, okay? And that is this, that our church here, our Baptist church, the Baptist name can be traced all the way back to the apostles. There's always been a, a church that has carried on the way we believe about the Bible. Uh, and I believe that. And um, I started getting into studying this material and found out that uh, the only people that do believe that, that teach that, are independent fundamental Baptists. And I uh, come across a book that uh, starts talking about some of these issues. And so what we're going to do, let me show you this. This is... This is the list, and this is established by James Carroll. Now, some of the guys that teach this, that have wrote books about this, pick and choose different groups that they like to jumble in this. But I don't have the years, but this is sort of going down successively, chronologically, through the ages of the groups of basically where they say you can link the true church. Starting in the early Church of Acts, the next group that comes out of that is the Montanist. Next group is the Novatians. They talk about St. Patrick, you know, St. Patrick's Day in Ireland. They claim him as a Baptist. We're going to look at that. Uh, the Donatists, the Paulicians, the Arnoldists, the Albigensians, the Anabaptists, the Waldenses, then the Baptist, and then the Independent Fundamental Baptist. And they say that's the line. You can trace it all, but it has nothing to do with the Catholic Church at all. The problem with that is, is that it's not honest. You say, what do you mean it's not honest? Well, it is picking little things here that maybe a Baptist would agree with and forgetting everything else that they taught. Because as we go through this, I'm going to show you where some of these groups on here probably were completely heretical and not even Christians. Okay? Um, so let's jump into this. Where are we at on time? All right, we're good in time. Let's jump into this. Uh, and Brother Ben, as we go through these... Uh, and Talk to these uh, about some of the individuals. I do have pictures, and then the picture will go away when I get to the next note. Um, first century, the first century church. All right, starts with Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 16. This is where, this is not the beginning of the church, but this is the introduction to the church. Where he says, I will build my ecclesia. I will build it. Okay, and then... Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he ra he's raised again on the third day, he spends 40 days and 40 nights with his disciples, and then he ascends to heaven, and then the angels come and says, why are you standing around? Get to work. And what did Jesus say? Wait for the power. So then you know the story, they go to the upper room, they pray, and then the next day they come out, and the Holy Spirit comes down. And you have Pentecost. And that's where the church is established. It is introduced by Jesus and the disciples, and it is established in Pentecost. Okay, from there, we have the book of Acts. And if you are interested or don't remember, I think everybody here is pretty much Wednesday night 
attendees. So uh, what Brother Steve went through on the book of Acts is a detailed record of the beginning of the church. It ends in Acts chapter 28 with Paul going to Rome. Okay? Now we have some bits of information biblically with Paul's letters about situations that happened in his life after what's recorded in the book of Acts and up until his death. Um, I like this quote by Chuck Swindoll. It says this. In Matthew 16, he says this uh, when Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, Note to whom the church belongs. Jesus. He says, I will build my church. The church is not the work of a body of elders or deacons or a seminary or a denomination. The church is not the work of any person on earth. The church belongs to Christ. It is His body on earth. I love that quote. So in the book of Acts, uh, let's see. Yeah, in the book of Acts you have Pentecost, the ministry of Peter, the conversion of Saul, the gospel of the Samaritans, the gospel of the Gentiles, the missionary to the Gentiles, which is who? Paul. And then the church begins to spread. Then you have the Roman persecution in 70 AD where the Titus, General Titus comes and destroys uh, uh, Jerusalem. And we've mentioned that, we've talked about that, and that sort of changed the landscape of where they could meet. And uh, you have, who's the emperor? Who's the Roman Caesar? It is Nero at this time. And we have heard all kinds of stories about what kind of persecution they started to go under. This brings us to the next one, the second century. So that's the first century, what you have going on in the book of Acts, that then leads, and the Bible, that then leads into the second century. Second century, the church of martyrs and confessors. The Church of Martyrs and Confessors. The church began to face opposition in two forms starting in the second century. Now, here's what's interesting. We, we just came through a study on Charismatics and Seeker Friendly, and we read at the beginning of that passages that Paul wrote and Peter wrote uh, telling them to watch out for false teachers and, and uh, wolves in sheep's clothing and those kinds of things. And there's many passages. And, you know, it's funny because we go to that and we say... We see a direct parallel to our day and age. But I think whenever you lack an understanding of church history, you forget how relevant it was to them at that time. Okay? The two biggest oppositions that they faced starting in the second century was blatant persecution and false teaching. Blatant persecution and false teaching. Do you understand that before Constantine set up the government-run church, the Catholic Church already existed? The Catholic Church was already in existence. And not only that, the Catholic Church had already gone down the road of sacraments and all kinds of things like that that were unbiblical. False teaching started right at the get-go. Right at the get-go. And one of the biggest things that had to do with false teaching was Greek philosophy. We're going to talk about a lot of guys that, that's names you may have heard before, you may not have, that are popular figures when it comes to early church history and called church fathers that took a stand for biblical teaching but were way off over here on other things. Why? Because the integration of Greek philosophy of that time. It was so bad. So blatant persecution. One of the earliest martyrs, out of the, uh, besides those that are in the book of Acts, was a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp. Polycarp lived 86 years and then was put to death 
for his belief in Christ. When asked to recant, he stood there and said, I have served Christ these 80 and 6 years. How can I turn my back on him now? I believe, yeah, that's Polycarp, 69 to 156, okay? And Polycarp was one of the first major martyrs and church fathers, all right? So that's the second century. Many other martyrs started coming in. In fact, what you have is Nero is the beginning of the persecution of the Christians when it comes to the Roman emperors. For the next several hundred years up until Constantine, you have ten successive Roman Caesars, Roman emperors, that all have stages of persecution for the Christians until Diocletian. We're going to get to Diocletian in a minute. Diocletian was the last Roman emperor to persecute Christians and the worst. Nero wasn't the worst. Diocletian was the worst. It got bad under Diocletian. And then after Diocletian comes Constantine, and that's when things change. Okay? So uh, this brings us to the 3rd century. The 3rd century, persecution and heresy. Uh, The first guy is Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is known for uh, defending a lot of the true teachings of the Bible. One of the the Greek philosophy things that you're going to see quite a bit among these church fathers is the teaching that's called dualism. Have you ever heard of dualism? Dualism was established by Plato, and dualism is this. This was established among the Greeks. In fact, Paul had to deal with this in the book of Acts, I think Acts 17. Um, John dealt with this in one of the churches he wrote to. And dualism is this, that anything of the spiritual is good and anything of the physical is bad. So whenever that crept into the church's beliefs, it meant that God was good, uh, the Holy Spirit's good, Jesus Christ didn't really raise from the dead because he was in a physical body. Why would you raise something physical? Because that's bad. So therefore, and this is where the doctrine of Trinity really got skewed because how could the physical person of Jesus Christ, who is a physical body, if physical material is bad, be part of God, which is spiritual and good? And that's what they taught. Now, a lot of these guys that we're going to talk about that took stands on these things also believe this, okay? This is the truth about church history, that a lot of the guys that took stands for the truths that we teach today were also very, very off on other things, okay? Um, just a martyr. The next guy is Origen, and uh, that's Origen. All these guys have some killer beards, okay? Uh, Origen... Origen is, uh, although he made some contributions to theology, he was a big-time thinker, Origen is mainly known for heretical teaching, mixing this Greek philosophy with biblical teaching. Origen was one of the biggest guys that really pushed this dualism and Gnosticism in Christian teaching. Origen was a thinker that thought through a lot of things theologically, but he's really known as a heretic, Origen is, okay? He came from Egypt. Then this brings us to the next guy, Tertullian. And uh, this is a, that's a picture of Tertullian. Tertullian uh, lived from 160 to 225. Uh, he was converted later in life. Tertullian took a strong stand for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, now, disillusioned against those who were living worldly and denying the faith, 
uh, he then moved to Montanism. Now, here's what you have. Um, during this time, about we're in the second century, so the end of 100s, beginning of the 200s, understand the church is still facing persecution. And we hear a lot of stories about the martyrs like Polycarp, but the majority of the church, they were saying, yeah, we're Christians at church, but if the Romans come to the door, uh, no, we, we don't go to church. Don't want, we don't go to church. And to men that were converted like uh, Tertullian, that disgusted him. And then he moves to Rome, and when he moves to Rome, he not only finds that, but he also finds that a lot of the Christians were partaking in a lot of the worldly things that were going on in the city. And that disgusted him. So he leaves the... Now, when I say this, don't think of the system that's set up today. When he leaves the Catholic Church, he leaves the Catholic Church, or the universal church, the church at the time, he then goes to become, adopts the Montanist. Now, when Tertullian adopts this belief of the Montanist and becomes a Montanist, this belief was already around for about 80 years. And the guy who started it, whose name is Montanus, had already died. Now, this is the first group that is in the succession of the true church line of the Baptists. So who were the Montanists? Montanus was a guy that came on the scene and started saying that he was getting visions from God. That he was getting prophecies from God. That God was speaking to him directly and he was God's prophet. And then he didn't get quite a people to jump on his bandwagon. So then he grabbed these two ladies. One was named, uh, he called them prophetesses. And one was named Maximilla and the other was Priscilla. And what he would do is he started going around to these different areas, to anybody that would come listen to him, and he'd put up Maximilian and Priscilla up there, and they'd stand up there, and they'd, they'd give their prophecies and amaze people. And people then started joining. And it started to get way out of hand after that. In fact, if the Montanists had any association with anything that existed today, it would be more along the lines of the extreme charismatics than it would anything with Baptists. They were not Baptistic at all. Okay, the Montanists were out there. Uh, no foundation exists for regarding Montanists as Baptistic preservers of the true church. The arch distinctive of Montanism was the doctrine of extra-biblical special revelation. Okay? And the Montanists actually, Tertullian joins them, they go on, and they last for about uh, two to maybe 300 years, okay? Um, there's a lot more I can say about that, but I want to move on. The next group uh, that is around this second century time that is also in the line of the Baptist successionism is the Novatians. Uh, I believe I have a picture of Novation up here. Don't have Montanists, but I think I got a, this is a sculpture, this is Novation. Here's what happens with Novation. Now, this is why a lot of Baptists say that Novation was a Baptist, because Novation broke off of the Catholic Church. Now, understand, the Catholic Church is still not the government-run church. We're still before Constantine, so they're still facing persecution too. Even though they've gone off and teaching wrong things, they're still facing persecution too. Novation thought that he should be set up as a bishop. All right? So he starts candidating to be set up by the church as a bishop in this area. 
Well, there's another guy named Cyprian and then another person that I can't remember his name. And they get into this big, it was almost like this, this uh, sort of uh, uh, campaign election like the Trump-Clinton election, okay? I mean, it, was, it got ugly. And then they got their own followers. And finally, the church stepped out and said, we're picking Cyprian. And Novation got ticked. And Novation believed with all of his heart that he was supposed to be the bishop and he was supposed to be running the church and everything like that. And whenever they did not choose him, he said, I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. Okay? He went and left the church and started his church. And this is where a lot of them say that Novation was a Baptist because he left the Catholics. This is something you have to understand about Novation. Novation didn't say, I'm done with the Catholic church. Novation said this, you are not the Catholic church. I'm the Catholic Church because you're wrong because you didn't pick me, so the true church is with me. That's what Novation said. Everything that they practiced, Novation practiced. Novation did not baptize believers by immersion. He did it the way the Catholics did it. He was extremely Catholic in his practice and belief. He just despised them because they didn't pick him. All Novation was, and then those that followed him, the Novationists, were a schism off the Catholic Church. Which, you fast forward a thousand years, and what do we call those? Protestants. <laughs> okay? That's what the Novationists were. Alright, so this brings us now into the 4th century. Where are we at? Okay, we, we'll cover the 4th century and we should be done today. We'll pick back up later. The 4th century the beginning of the state church. Next, you have Constantine. Of course, we've heard this story before. In 312, after Diocletian, the Roman emperor Constantine comes to power. They're in a battle because what happens... Uh, well, no, this, this is later on. Um, but uh, they're, they're in a battle, and he goes out there, and he looks up, and he sees a vision uh, of a cross, and it says uh, something like, uh, through this, conquer, or something like that. I don't have it exactly right. And he sees that as a revelation from God, and they win the battle. And then after that, he comes home and he says, you know, the Christian God that died on the cross is the true thing. And so then he makes it legal, so the persecution from the Roman government ends. And then, fast forward about 20, 30 years later, they begin to set up, actually, government-run churches. And so the universal, or the Catholic Church, now becomes the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Constantine. All right, now uh, the next big thing, the next big instance is the Council of Nicaea, 325. Why is this a huge deal? Because at the Council of Nicaea is where you have established the church's standing for the doctrine of the Trinity. What we are able to teach and that is passed down today of the teaching of the Trinity is in large part thankful to the Council of Nicaea. Because some men stood up, Augustine I think was one of, or no, Athanasius. Athanasius was one of the church fathers. He's next, I may have a picture of him. Athanasius, there's Athanasius. I think I have another one of Athanasius. Uh, yeah, there's, there's one of Athanasius. He went to the Council of Nicaea and really uh, destroyed the competition when it came to the doctrine of the Trinity. And that was the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius, before he died, also, I, th- I want to say it's the Council of Chalcedon, about 395, 
when he was very later in life, Athanasius um, was hugely instrumental in adopting the canon of Scripture. We talked about that a little bit when we went over the Bible last year. But Athanasius also helped establish the canon of Scripture at the Council of Chalcedon. So the 66 books that you have in your Bible is in large part because of what Athanasius did at the Council of Chalcedon. This brings us to this next guy, Augustine of Hippo, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, Augustine or Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. And uh, this guy was a very big thinker. And um, Augustine, uh, he took a lot of stands for uh, the Trinity as well and the theology of God. But he also was plagued a little bit with some Greek philosophy. So he was also off on some different things. Um, Last time we talked about Augustine was whenever we talked about Jerome. And I think that was the last note. Jerome's Latin Vulgate is produced in 405. And Augustine, when Jerome produces the Latin Vulgate, which is now the Bible in Latin, so before they were taking manuscripts and reading them in Greek, whenever they had manuscripts, not everybody had manuscripts. So the Bible teaching that they have now is going to be able to be copied out of what Jerome did, putting it all in Latin. And this was very upsetting to, um, to Augustine, who caused riots in the streets um, over this because he disliked it that much because um, he had done the Old Testament as well, and they had always used the Septuagint, and, which was Greek. And Augustine said that what he had done was an atrocity, that it was not of God. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> all right. It was not the true word of God. The Septuagint was and all this stuff. And so that was Augustine of Hippo, Jerome's Latin Vulgate produced. And then that brings us to the 5th century where we're going to talk about, again, Augustine and the Pelagian controversy, and we'll get into St. Patrick. Was St. Patrick a Baptist, like a lot of them claim? All right. We'll talk about that next Sunday. That is the beginning of our study in the church. Again, I'm going to try to get through this church history as quick as I can. Some of you may be bored to this. Some of you may think this is fascinating. Some of you may be mad at me now. Um, But... uh, We'll get through that, and we'll be talking about things that I'm really excited about on the purpose of the church, where does the church go, and uh, that kind of thing. Um, I'm excited about this morning, our worship service, and then preacher's message. I'm going to be doing the kids' point, but I'm excited about preacher's message. And then tonight, uh, we're going to be going uh, over our vision and, um, and uh, our schedule for the, the new year, sort of the different things like that. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You're such a great God. We are thankful for those that came before us, that we can learn from their stands, and we can learn from their mistakes. And we ask that you'll help us not to be arrogant enough to know that we have, to think that we have it all together, but to trust in you and to lean on your word and to uh, live solely uh, by your word. We love you. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.